0: Yasir. Yasir is the CTO and SVP of Texel and he will be the co-host uh, with me uh, for this particular podcast. And today we have with us Scott. Scott, first of all, thank you very much and welcome to BetterTech.
1: Thanks, Osib. Great to be here.
0: Awesome. So Scott, before we can like officially start, I mean, why don't you go ahead and tell us a bit more about yourself and what, what, you, what you are up to uh, what sort of uh, work you are doing, and we can kick it off from there.
1: Yeah, sounds great. So my name is Scott Kriz. I'm CEO and co-founder of Signal. Um, we can get into that a little bit more later. It's an authorization company. Um, but a little bit about my background. Uh, started out in mechanical engineering um, and quickly gravitated towards software because I thought that it was uh, more fun to build things and innovate more quickly than things like um, turbines and, and missile systems, which I had been working on previously. I um, actually ended up moving to product management, where it was kind of the bridge between tech strategy and business, um, worked for multiple startups, and really about 12 years ago, um, was looking at the identity space as a potential consumer of um, identity and access management, single sign-on specifically. Um, ended up evaluating and starting a company to, to solve the problem because we couldn't find anything that was out there uh, that did what we wanted. Um, Fast forward a little bit of time, uh, that company grew quite a bit and was selling into enterprise. Uh, We ended up um, partnering with uh, various large software companies, one of which was Google Cloud, um, who acquired us uh, in 2017 and we rebuilt that inside of Google. I spent the next four years doing various things uh, with my team relating to identity at at Google, um, both in cloud and, and Alphabet in general. Both looking at customers and what they were doing, but also what uh, Google was doing internally. And as a as an entrepreneur, always thinking about things that are broken and how to fix them. Uh, one of the things that I realized was Google was doing a really good job at protecting their customers' data, um, specifically not only from outside threats but from insiders as well. And that was one of the initiatives I was part of. Um, that became the inspiration for starting Signal, which was really how do we take a solution of ensuring that employees, contractors and vendors can only get access to the right data when they need to, more when they should versus when they could. And so taking that out in, into industry and realizing that other uh, CISOs and, and CTOs and CIOs of large enterprises were looking to solve similar problems, that was where we started Signal um, and that's the problems that we solved today.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, so Yasser, yeah, so you have a question?
2: Yeah, I, I actually was reading through your uh, your blogs and some some of the writing that you have posted on your LinkedIn profile, and it was very interesting to see. I mean, authentication is one area, but authorization is a whole different kind of challenge. We have been through it, and uh, so 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 the dynamic uh, authorization management. We know that there are functional authorization, that there is data authorization, but this is kind of dynamic data authorization or dynamic functional authorization also? I mean, is it both or is it one of them?
1: Well, so it has to do with anything that is uh, dynamic in nature, meaning it's not based on static uh, data, but more of changing time. And I'll give a really simple example. Um, About two years ago, almost three years ago now, uh, Hong Kong was pulled into China more closely. And large enterprises that were multinational all of a sudden wanted to say things like, if you work for our company and you're based in Hong Kong, we don't want you to get access to customers' data unless those customers are also physically located in Hong Kong. So you can see where, from an authentication understanding who the user is, that really doesn't help there. For understanding what should the user be authorized to do, You can tell where some of these models break down, because not only do you have to know about the individual user who's trying to get access to the data, but you actually have to know about that metadata around the the asset, that customer, and know that they physically are located in Hong Kong. All of that data coming from various sources gets complicated quick. Um, And until very recently, there wasn't really a good technical solution without creating a lot of latency to solve for that problem. And that's, that's really where we doubled down to solve those types of problems to introduce a really easily understandable, human-readable type of policy, but translating that into technology and how it would actually be implemented very quickly and at scale. Yeah, one of the problems that we
2: uh, that we face while implementing authorizations is the performance I and mean, if, if you want it to be dynamic and uh to be checked right at that time then it, it obviously hits the performance so you, so many times we come up with cached tokens tokens are kept within the authorization services and we can validate those and match them with the authorizations over there right there and be very quick in that uh, authorization check uh, kind of query but in this case the the situation is changing and you you cannot i mean the as you give some, some of the examples. So how do you make sure that the, this kind of system is performing well?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, and I think that was really the the challenge in uh, of how do you solve this problem? This is not a problem that people, you know, it's not a new problem. It's something that people, folks have been aware of for a long time. And, and I think when you introduce this concept of latency, even if you try to cache every system of record, um, whenever you create latency, it becomes uh, very challenging to justify causing business disruption or delay. And so it's taken a back seat. And so the way that we've approached it is actually, um, we we first looked at the problem and then how how can we solve it at scale? What we found was that because we're reliant on all of these historically cached or even not cached systems, for example, is a support agent assigned a ticket um, that is associated with a customer? Will that be a business justification to get access to that data? All of that lives in in various systems, whether it be a ServiceNow, a homegrown system, a directory. Um, What we've done is leverage a graph database. And so we pull in any data that is relevant for that authorization decision, so that when you think about the nodes on a graph being the systems of record and the metadata around them being contained in the graph, a a policy like the Hong Kong one that I brought up is actually just really a simple query on that graph. that's where the late, that's where graph, I, I think a lot of folks have heard about, you know, graph databases for a while, and your mind tends to gravitate toward social network or something like that. Um, this is, I think, security is the one place where in various aspects, including authorization, graph database actually becomes uh, not just in an implementation detail, but something that actually facilitates the problem to be solved with a low latency. So we're talking, you know, uh, milliseconds of response on a on a per authorization request basis.
2: Great. Uh, I think it's a very interesting topic and we can go very deep into it because I have so many questions if you're managing many applications and maybe uh, giving authorization on one application, for example, on one ticket, uh, it may I mean, the ripple could be that the person would get, uh, should get authorization on other functions in other applications also and how should, can we manage those. So it's a very detailed topic. We can go on and on about this, but how do you go about building, uh, how, how do you get people, I mean, how do you get people who can work on these kinds of systems? How do you build your team? And
1: uh, how do you- So, plan- so um, on building the team, I think it's about finding uh, you know, like-minded people who understand the problem. And also, um, I, I'll, I'll keep it even more general than that. Uh, folks that really look, gravitate towards solving really hard problems that have not been solved yet t- tends to be where we focus our efforts. Um so those are the two things we focus on as a company hard people that that like to solve hard problems but also people that like to work together and be collaborative um that's where we we kind of find that our our values lie and how we do a lot of the team building here
0: Sure Sure so yeah i mean um, yasser basically i mean talked a bit deeper about the product that you are basically building but i mean you you touched upon the topic of uh, I mean, graduating from being a mechanical engineer into software, right? So how did that happen? I mean, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's both engineering, but still different disciplines. So how how did that happen?
1: Yeah. So um, during the course of you know college, I went to school in upstate New York at a, a small engineering school, uh, Union College, and uh, there were very few programming courses at the time. It was basically um, you learn C and you use that as a as a tool um, in solving problems, and so. Um, where, where it really occurred to me was I was actually doing a, a co-op um, in school, working full time at General Electric, and I worked. If you can picture, there's a manufacturing plant in Schenectady, New York, that builds uh, steam and gas turbines, and you can actually look from one corner of the building all the way across to the other, and it's it's a mile. You can see a straight mile inside the building. Uh, my little cubicle was actually in a small building in the dead middle of that manufacturing plant, and I remember going in and, and working. Um, for for days at a time on analyzing uh, the growth rate of a new material it sounds really boring and obscure but at the time it was exciting and so lots of tests um tests and things like that and you analyze the data and the result was after six months I had this this piece of paper that was essentially a growth rate of a crack curve and I thought this is a great deliverable I'm really proud of my work and I remember going up to my manager and they said, that's awesome. And congratulations. Why don't you go to the library? And they sent me to another building and put it in that library. So that we have that as, as information. I went into the library and it was like any library It was, you know, fairly large and there were large books and, and three ring binders. And I found the place where I was supposed to put the, the document. I opened it up. And it was just hundreds of pages of these exact same growth rate curves. And I thought, wow, I just spent six months of my life um, building this, Thing that might never be used and that clearly people have done hundreds of times before and it was very um, it was the opposite of satisfying from a career perspective and so p- part of me as i was starting to write code in my in my class was and this was in in 1996 and 97 the web was pretty new and, and there weren't really architectures that were well known so um, being able to just write code and put up a web page and start to explore wow, people can interact with something that I worked worked on in five minutes, not in six months. Um, so that was really the accelerant for wanting to start to write code. And then I followed on and, and actually started um, a business and it's not anything to do with identity, it was in online education. Um, but it really just, it, it was really um, freeing to say there's this new technology of writing code and specifically web-based applications where your your time to value and your time to satisfaction is so short. And so it became um, very satisfying for that reason.
0: Sure. So, I mean, Signal um, is basically an authentication uh, tool, right? For yeah. enterprises. Uh, I mean, uh, enterprise solution, I would say. So, uh, I mean, if you would have to explain uh, in like a layman term or like in a basic term, I mean, how would you go about it? Like what sort of problem it is solving? You touched upon this topic, but maybe in a more simpler term for the audience, how, how would you explain that?
1: Sure. I think there's two sides. One is as a worker and one is as a consumer. So if you think about it, if you have a job and you sit in front of a computer and you're interacting with applications, let's say you're interacting with Salesforce or any application, what can you actually get access to that the company that's employing you has? What data can you see and what action can you take? Sure. Um, I gravitate towards sales and support because those are very scaled positions at large companies. So let's say you have the ability to refund customers. Um, What gives you that justification? It's usually some type of business logic. Um, Today's world really exists in in this concept of of role-based access control. So the company decides that you're in a specific role, you support a certain product line, and that gives you access to certain data and you can perform functions. So really your job is to refund people, but... What prevents you from accidentally refunding the wrong person or even worse what prevents a worker who might be malicious from um on their last day starting to just issue refunds and delete everything they have access to so that's part of it i think um, there's also i think maybe one of the more obvious or less obvious threats which is outsiders behaving as insiders so as you think about security a lot of the most dangerous things that are happening is accounts are getting made that aren't real humans There are outsiders that are being created internally. How would you possibly know that they're doing things they shouldn't be if they're in the roles that dictate what they're what they could be doing? And so what our system does is really try to understand what are these ephemeral roles and taking it beyond role-based and taking it into logic-based and what we call just-in-time access management. So every time data is accessed, it's on the fly. Now, I'll go back to the consumer side. When you call a company and you're asking them to support you and look up your information and data. Um, why is that person on the other side of the phone or the other side of the chat able to access your home address, your phone number, and your personal information? Is, is it something you explicitly let them do? Is it part of their job? And so I think there's an expectation that's being set for um, individual consumers and customers to say, we really want to know where our data is, and we want it to be protected as much as possible. So those are two, two sides of the coin.
0: Sure, sure, sure. And and Yasser, you you have any questions? No, I mean, think
2: uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, from the author. So is, is this tool a kind of, uh, I mean, what? so what is the state of this tool? Is it already there in the market? You can use it, test it, play with it. And does, yeah, so you it, can, uh, does it get integrated well with the existing tools, sit between the tools and manage this whole thing?
1: Yeah, great question. So yes, we um, generally available. Um, we have multiple versions of the software, meaning we have a SaaS version, which is what we're finding is most of our customers want to use that as a sandbox. So testing out with not real data um, because this is identity and it's authorization. Some of the larger enterprises gravitate more toward wanting this deployed on their own premises. So um, the solution is architected with, uh, with Kubernetes and it's containerized. So we can deploy it in, I think to date, um, we can deploy it in Amazon environment, the AWS, uh, GCP, and um, and Azure as well. So we're just doing an Azure deployment actually right now. And what we're finding is that, um, you know, customers again, want to test it in the SaaS version or want to just focus on that on-prem. So it's fully usable. um, And and the way that it gets deployed is is typically looking at a primary use case that someone's trying to solve. And it might be that support use case where you say, I don't want, I have built a homegrown billing system. This is a common one. A lot of large enterprises have these homegrown systems that are really big. And we want to protect the data in there on the application side to say, we only want someone who's in a certain role, like a support agent, to gain access to that data if they have a ServiceNow ticket um, assigned to them and it was not created by them. Uh, You can see where that can get kind of tricky. Um, And so where that takes us as an integration is Having, having pre-integrated applications like ServiceNow or Salesforce or any of the large enterprise SaaS applications, but also having very easy uh, to understand um, SDKs where developers can build it into their own homegrown applications. We can certainly do that. We've been working with systems integrators. Typically, enterprises have a, a few SIs that they, they gravitate towards. So partnering with them, um, we're happy to have our team handle that and, and help out as well. But uh, we typically try to get those high high priority use cases solved, and then the expansion goes over time. Um, Sierra, one thing you mentioned was uh, you know all these applications and what happens in one application versus another. Um, there's really a benefit of having more things integrated because when something is happening that is unintentional or, or not justified by business, you really want to be able to stop that in every point where that user can get access to data. In other words, let's take uh, an imaginary user, an outsider acting as an insider that's going through Salesforce systematically and taking information that they shouldn't. Probably a good idea to have a centralized place to handle authorization so you can prevent them from going into the other hundred applications that they may or may not have access to.
2: And uh, it looks like, uh, uh, so is it like very simple to implement, for example, uh, when we are writing all of these detailed rules And uh, is it easily configurable on the fly? For example, if I'm changing a rule, somebody with minimum training can go and uh, change those rules?
1: Yeah, that is a very insightful question. And and I'm guessing that there's some experience with working with previous um, authorization models where they use uh, fairly complex and obscure um, um, languages. One is called Zacamole. So a lot of the identity folks have seen in industry that You know, once a policy is written, it's written in such a technical way that no one in the business wants to touch it again. So if the person that wasn't physically writing it is not at the company anymore, there's a fear of causing business disruption. So uh, one of the strong pieces that we did was we said, okay, we built the tech on the background, but how do we actually give that user interface a sensible way for business to understand? And we've created what we call human readable policies. So these are uh, low code, no code um, user interactions where you can start to click on um, buckets of of items, whether it be around the target data or the the principal data. Um, so who's acting to to look at the data and what the data contains, but make it in a way that that someone can read and that you know and, and understand. Oh, this policy actually says that support agents who are located in this region cannot access data for this purpose based on. Uh, a business justification, which is defined by ServiceNow Association. So really clean and easy to understand. Um, that's That was a really big challenge for us, but I think we've we've gotten to a great place there.
0: So, yeah, so maybe like a, a follow-up question. I mean, since Yase touched upon the topic uh, already, but, but many people, I mean, identity management and other things, people basically confuse things with single sign-on as well. So you might have come across customers who might be mixing these things, rules, rules, single sign-on, SAML and all these things. So what in your experience, I mean, you have seen the market adapt to these different things or are these different things, are these the same thing or how would you uh, explain that?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it, it, it it is actually identity for that reason is a very complicated thing to communicate to both customers. Um, and even identity practitioners. Um, so if you take a look at authentication, which is you know signing on and, and saying this person is who they say they are, and you take companies like Okta, um, who's yeah. one of the leaders in that space, um, very quickly, you'll notice that when they actually provision a user into an application, they provision a little bit more than the user. They provision maybe that they're an administrator or a user. That really crosses the border between single sign-on and authorization. So there there is kind of... The mental model is there's two sides. It's authentication and authorization, like who yeah. you have and what you can do. But they're getting a little bit conflated. And you're starting to see both companies that were focused on the authorization side and, and role-based access control like SailPoint start to get into provisioning and sign on. And you're seeing companies like Okta starting to. So there are there are blurry lines. And I think that's one thing that we're, we're trying to help clarify, which is that these are very related. Um, but they they have different um, aspects to them and you have to pay attention to both so it's a tricky industry for that reason and it's a it's a really good call out i
2: mean uh, it's, it's a very interesting topic so uh, when you go uh and you take the solution somewhere so is uh, a central authentication system or single sign-on a pre for this or uh, you you can do that as, as part of the exercise as well?
1: So we like to think about it as like, there's an identity uh, maturity curve. And if you look at that curve, there's various technologies or capabilities that are along that curve. Um, that includes things like multi-factor authentication and includes cloud identity access management, cloud IAM. Um, it, it includes other things like CASB and network layer. But what we find is that if if customers have not get adapted or adopted a um, cloud IAM solution, it's, they're probably too early to really be tackling a fine-grain authorization challenge. So, um, to date, we've been really focused on that the folks that have already done their their Okta or Azure or even Ping implementation on the single sign-on side, and they're looking to even take it that next the, the step further. Um, I, one thing to note is that you know security is a very backwards-looking. Um, industry. It's it's usually solving problems for things that are clearly broken, right? So uh, an incident occurred, how do we solve for that problem? I think we're now getting into a realm where uh, folks are thinking a lot more proactively about what are the systems that we set up that will be more durable and scalable as unanticipated threats um, are, are, are seen. And so, um, yeah, so hopefully that that answers the question.
0: Yeah, it does. So one one question I mean uh, related is the future of work. So I mean, you say that it's a leading security solution for the future of work. So how is future of work related with what what you are offering?
1: Yeah, um, so there's definitely a gravitation toward operational efficiency and low risk. both from a financial perspective and a reputation perspective for every company. And I I think any company at scale today would consider themselves a a company where their biggest asset is their data. And so um, as as we look to the future, what are the ways that you can protect that in unanticipated situations with security? And we believe that part of that is actually understanding the behavior of what typical users do from an authorization perspective. There was an industry maybe 10, 15 years ago Uh, uh, user behavior analytics, UBA, and it was this interesting concept of, if we understand what people are doing and everything they do, we can make things more efficient. But it wasn't really grounded in any business value necessarily, other than efficiency. Um, When we start looking at what happens from an authorization pattern perspective, who is doing something that they should be doing versus not, we can start to model typical behavior from the authorization events. And I think what the future of work looks like is understanding not not what people could do, but what they should be doing. And as a byproduct, understanding what anomalous behavior is. And once you can start understanding anomalous behavior, you can model behaviors for specific industries and roles. And this is where you know, I, I think a lot of folks would claim they have AI that will solve this. I think we're a little bit early for that, but the truth is you can start to model, so maybe ML is more appropriate. but as as it does evolve, you can really start to model behavior. And if you aggregate that behavior across multiple companies without actually sharing data with just sharing the models, we can get to a place where we can actually prevent accidental, malicious uh, behavior from occurring before it actually does and not look back and figure out how do you remediate something bad that happened.
0: Right. Sure. So, I mean, while developing this product uh, that you are offering to the market, you might have come across like many challenges. So, what would you rate as the, I mean, top most challenge, and how did you solve that?
1: Yeah, the challenges. I mean, I, I think at starting any businesses, there's there's new challenges every day. And the second that you um, you know think that you've solved for one problem, you you move on to the next. Uh, you know, speaking as a startup with you know we're a year old with 30 people um, and we've accomplished a lot we built a lot technically and brought it to enterprise I think the early challenges are really how do you how do you perform the functions of a large team with a small team and so that means uh, being very clear about who's working on what and oftentimes the early team members will be working on much more breadth than they would be even six months from the time that they start so figuring out that balance and, and helping the team really, focus on the things that are that are urgent um, as much as possible. And then I, I think in any new industry where you're trying to innovate, especially in security and selling to enterprise, there's a timing in the market. And so um, some of the challenge can be in large enterprise getting acknowledgement that, yes, we, we actually buy into that five-year vision, but we're probably not going to get there for a year or two years. And so figuring out what's the value that you can create early on for our customers and that's where that that challenge was one where it, it caused us to look at what are the primary use cases that we can solve. What's top of mind for the customers today? Because in addition to aligning on vision, it's just as important to get traction early on so that you can start to provide that business value. And that I think that's a, probably the most challenging thing about any company trying to sell to large enterprise today.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean, you 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 also suggested that I mean building the team. Uh, Was is one of the most crucial things. So how you have maintained the core team so far? or I mean, the members who started working with you who laid down the foundation of the framework and everything, are they still with you? Or you have been training more and more people, expanding the core? How the, uh, I mean, team operations uh, going on?
1: Yeah, the team is, I think, and I tell my team this all the time, the team is more important than what you're doing um, because the team will figure out if you need to change a little bit, or you need to focus in a different area, so I think uh, disproportionately focusing on the people that that you bring in early, and also that sets the precedent. So the first two three people um, that you bring into the organization that will attract the next set of talent. And we've had a really um, we've had a really g- a g- great experience in building this team. I would say when we started the company, it was before tech layoffs were happening, so it was. It was a lot more challenging to to get folks persuaded that we were doing something interesting, that it was, you know, that even crossing over from a company like Google or Salesforce or Okta, which we brought folks on, making sure they understood the, you know, the the true risk of a startup versus the perceived risk. So that was hard. I think um, having a deliberate process is really helpful. So taking some of the learnings from working at at the Alphabet companies and and some of the other large uh, tech companies in Silicon Valley, being very focused on. Um, the skills, the behavior, the culture, and making sure that, you know, we only bring in the very best and and also that behavioral piece, I think I would would say is non-negotiable and setting values for the company that we think should be consistent. And I'm not going to, you know, different companies have different values. And so I think it's important that you find like-minded people during that interview process. And we actually did every one of our interview questions is actually tied into one of our values, whether it's transparency, bias for action, growth mindset, systematic thinking, respect. These are some of the things that we we interview for. Um, and then making sure that people are, are happy and empowered to do their job. And um, we're very much not a culture of micromanagement. Um, we tend to hire the best people and, and give them a lot of leeway and say, we, we hired you because you know what you do. And Um, And so that's been really, we we hope that that continues on and we never compromise on the values and the people that we bring into the company.
2: Well, your product to work with, does it require any specific kind of architecture uh, for the other products to follow? For example, service-oriented, there should be?
1: uh... There's certainly applications that are much easier to work with. So if you're talking about, you know, obviously the sas applications we we do the work there but when you and those tend to be more modern infrastructure than some of the old homegrown systems on the homegrown systems um we can we can work with you know if if there is a custom uh programming language that was developed by the company that you know is not available externally that that can be a little bit more uh challenging i'd say the the ones that are the the simplest are actually I wouldn't call them simple, but more straightforward, are the ones that have a microservices architecture, because we can really um, we can really integrate at that microservices layer and do it in a scalable way. Um, I'd say the more monolithic uh, an application is, the the more challenging it would be. Um, or you know, if if it's a a compiled application that there, there's no source code for, there's some challenges there as well.
2: Yeah, and if my ecosystem has some desktop applications old. Those might also be something. That, uh,
1: Those something. would likely be challenging. Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of that because they tend to the the highest priority use cases tend to focus on applications that either have teams supporting them and and continually building on them. Um, you know, there are some obscure ones that are smaller, but they generally provide less of a, a business function, and therefore, um, when we think about the the, the threat, um, we we often prioritize based on the the user population, the number of employees or contractors or vendors interacting with the application, and that and the cross section of how much customer or sensitive data is in that application, and generally those tend to be staffed um, projects and and don't tend to be the obscure ones.
2: Okay, so so one again, a question leads to question. So. Uh, typically, what uh, the authorization systems that, I, that I've that i seen uh, that work with microservices and services are, they do authorization at the endpoint level, right? You have the endpoints and then they authorize those endpoints. But in your case, uh, endpoints are pretty static, but you are doing conditional or dynamic authorization also on mm-hmm. a static endpoint. So uh, somebody can bypass that dynamic check and go directly to the service. I don't know if that's how, how do you...
1: Yeah, so th- this is why we really focus on um, living at that application layer and not at the data layer. Um, I think there's other technologies and I know I know there's most of the companies we we work with the large organizations have either developed their own uh, data security or there's a lot of emerging companies doing that. Um, our focus is squarely on the application layer, so the place where, where the scale part of the business, the end users. Um, interact with applications to get data, and that's why we've chosen that because it's a a nice insertion point that actually solves for the the problem that our customers are looking to solve. Um, but it, it, the data layer is a very you know can you can the application developer bypass some type of authorization check, go directly to the data source? Yeah, that's absolutely um, possible for for the developers to do. Hmm.
2: Right, Hasim, over to you.
0: So yeah, I mean. Um, coming towards the end, where do you see um, the platform going? I mean, in say for example, five years, ten years. What's the long-term vision?
1: Yeah, so I, I think you know we we touched on this a little bit, but um, the long-term vision is really to get behind this concept of what what is the right thing for businesses to do for their customers. And I know this is, sounds a little bit abstract, and I'll I'll make it at, at Google. I, I really embraced in my four years there this concept of there's there's legal compliance and regulation around data and access to customers' information. And it was interesting because the culture there was one that that was the minimum bar that needed to be set. That was almost like not as important as doing the right thing. So in other words, uh, the, the compliance and the legal side is always trailing what really should be done. And so I think broadly the vision for us is to to do the right thing for customers and consumers, not just solve a temporary problem. And I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to say that other security companies have not solved uh longer-term problems, but you know, a compliance report is a good byproduct, but in and of itself, it doesn't really provide the function of protecting data. It's just evidence. So I think you know, we're we're less focused on on a checkbox and more focused on the long-term um, health of memorization. So uh, we we talked a little bit about um you know, the reactive versus proactive. And so what we find is our vision is really to create this, this understanding of ephemeral role and user authorization in a way that we can at scale prevent things that should not be happening from happening. Um, It's a very broad vision because it includes, it might include things like data layer, application layer, and more. Um, Today we're focused at that data layer. And I think that puts us in a great spot to, as a beachhead to, to start in that process.
0: Sure, sure. So, I mean, the platform uh, which you are offering uh, right now is constantly evolving. I mean, new and new features will be adding. You might be adding new integration layers or SIs or other related stuff. So what is something which is, I mean, state of the art or revolutionary that will be coming in the platform maybe in the coming days?
1: Yeah, I, I as we think about kind of, you know, the architecture of security moving into Um, more of a mesh architecture where you're taking best of breed. A lot of this has to do with interoperability. Um, Our CTO uh, who we had worked with at Google and when he was at Google actually wrote a standard called the the CAPE standard. It's it's continuous access evaluation protocol. Um, It's an example of a standard that would enable you to um, operate in a way that you can expand your offering to actually benefit other vendors as well. And so I think pushing hard, and, and that's done through the OpenID Foundation, so it's it's you know open and it's intended for others to adopt, but the idea would be um, that not just to put a stake in the ground and say we're going to be our identity company, but really let's move the industry in the right direction, so this innovation actually, um, and, and you'll see things happening in the next year where we're doing some announcements around it with other partners, but enabling um, uh, companies that are that are embracing it, such as uh, cisco and and Microsoft, to say, if something strange is happening on the authorization layer, how can we tell the octas and the active directories about it? How can we start to exchange information around threat levels and security between vendors? And I think the ones the the security vendors that are, I believe, going to be more successful, than the ones that focus on that interoperability and not try to own the entire thing themselves.
0: Sure. So, I mean, Yasser, if you have anything um, to ask Scott, I mean, you can go ahead. Otherwise, I think maybe we can wrap up the conversation. I think there are
2: many things that I would like, like to ask, but uh, if time allows, only then we can go. Uh, I think it was a very, very interesting topic and uh, very close to my heart, also.
1: Right. Well, Yasser, Haseeb, it was really great to meet you, and I, I thank you for having me on the on the show.
0: Thank you very much, Scott, for your time today, and we look forward to hosting you again, maybe taking a much deeper dive into the platform itself and see uh, what we can unfold.
1: Great. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to Better Tech. We look forward to bringing you the latest industry news in our next episode. In the meantime, Check out our other episodes at Texel.com slash podcast and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you never miss an episode.